You are listening to the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. These talks are made possible in part by generous donations from our listeners. To find out how to support and take part in our community, visit zennovascotia.com. Last week we began this text called Buddha Nature. And I think I warned you that this is a long text that says one thing over and over and over again. But it's important. And today I want to talk a little bit about why and also continue. I want to read the first line again, the first statement. The Buddha Shakyamuni said, all living beings in their entirety have the Buddha nature. The Tathagata always abides without any change. This is the statement that Dogen is unpacking throughout this, this rather long bit of writing. And in doing so, he's really making a bold statement about where he is in the larger Buddhist world. This text is a kind of response to other Buddhist schools and Buddhist ideas. It's also a a response to just conventional, uh, we might say, wisdom. But specifically, he's, he's trying to say, no, no, no. Within the spectrum of Buddhist teachings, we're here. It has to do with worldview. And it's fairly radical. I was trying to think of a good analogy for this, and I don't think I came up with one. But there's one of the things that I really appreciate about Zen, specifically, is that you could arrive at most of the teachings of the Zen world through completely rational deduction. Assuming that you're taking as your premise kind of Buddhism 101. This is true for a lot of the evolution of Buddhism in general through the Mahayana, that we, we, we take some idea like uh, impermanence, And we say, well, what does that mean if we extend that? If we really take it as a truth that all things are impermanent, well, what about this? What about this? And we try to find the far reaches of where that idea might go. A lot of Zen is simply kind of an outer edge of some of those ideas. And among them is is this idea of Buddha nature. One way we can understand this is just simply taking the idea of interdependence and saying, well, if if everything is really interdependent, then that means that everything, everything shares as part of its definition, interdependence. If everything is really interdependent with everything that is interdependent, then there is a There's an aspect to everything that is identical, truly identical. 
that's a lot of what's being said through this definition of Buddha nature. But it's not where we want to go emotionally with this. I'll read a little bit. What is the essential point of the world honored one, the world honored one is the Buddha, saying all living beings in their entirety have the Buddha nature? It is turning the Dharma wheel of the saying, what is it that comes like this? One speaks of living beings or sentient beings or the multitude of beings or the multitude of types. Here we're starting to define terms. The term entirety of being refers to living beings, the multitude of beings. That is, he's being very careful here, he isn't saying that the entirety of a being is Buddha nature. He's saying that Buddha nature is the entirety of beings. One entirety of the entirety of being is called living beings. At this very moment, the interior and exterior of living beings is the entirety of being of the Buddha nature. This is... It's a headache. <laughs> this is not only the skin, flesh, bones, and marrow singly transmitted. For you have got my skin, flesh, bones, and marrow. This skin, flesh, bones, and marrow is, is a, an internal reference, not just within in Zen, but within Dogen's writings. So we have Bodhidharma, who is this, this wonderful, probably not true character, who came from India to China and sat in a cave for nine years and cut off his eyelids and is the first patriarch of Zen. He's fantastic. You really couldn't ask for a better founder. And the story of transmission around him is that he had four key disciples, one of whom, importantly, I think, was a woman. Uh, it, it, uh, that doesn't get enough press. And there's this story that he gathered them around himself, and he, he spoke to each one of them individually. He asked them a question. I don't remember what the question was. And in response to each one, he, he told the first one, you have my skin. And then he told the next one, you have my flesh. And the next, you have my bones. And then to Huiko, who we consider to be the second patriarch of Zen, he said, you have my marrow. So there's this kind of portioning out of wisdom. You know, he's, and, and so the way we commonly understand this story is that he's being very nice, but he's also he's grading everyone. Right? And we say, well, skin is, you know, skin's nice. It's the, it's the biggest organ, but it's also, but it's the surface. Right? So he's not necessarily being demeaning, but he's saying, you know, you're not there. That's how we commonly understand this story. And then you can imagine the next person says he gets the flesh and probably thinks, I win. But then the next person gets the bones and you realize, oh, there's something deeper than flesh. And then finally, Huiko gets marrow, and everyone says, oh, man, Huiko won. Right. That's, our, that's how we commonly interpret this. 
But Dogen actually wrote an entire text about this story specifically, in which he went after that and he said, that's wrong. You don't get to separate the body out like that. You don't get to say that, that there's just skin, that somehow that that's less. Skin doesn't exist without marrow. Marrow doesn't exist without bones. Bones don't exist without flesh. So he's saying, enlightenment, really, it doesn't, it doesn't exist on a spectrum. You can't get an A in enlightenment while your friend gets a B. Right? So he takes, he takes people to task with this story in particular. And when he refers to it, of course, he's referring back to his own interpretation of it. Right? And so he's saying, don't imagine that when I talk about Buddha nature, I'm talking about something that someone has but someone else doesn't have, or that someone has more deeply than someone else, or that some people have better access to than someone else. I'm using language to describe something that is universal and equal. Later, he says, the term entirety of being is not initial being, not original being, not marvelous being. How much less is it conditioned being or deluded being? So here he's starting to go after some of the things that we might think Buddha nature is. We might think that, that Buddha nature is original nature. This is a kind of strange idea that we fall into. It's like original sin, right? We, we have this, this opposite idea that we're all born fundamentally Buddha. And some people even extend that out, and you hear people talk about the, the wisdom of children. You know, it's like, oh, if, if only we could see through the eyes of a child. No, I have children, <laughs> right? There's an unbelievable generosity to that view, but it's not wisdom because it's not transcendent, right? So he's saying, don't imagine that this is something that is uh, maybe pure in the beginning and becomes obscured. Don't think it's something like that. Don't think that Buddha nature is the truth of you and that everything else is somehow counter to it. And he's very skillful in this, I think, because he knows what our minds do, right? He's, he's speaking to ideas that existed and that still exist. It's very hard to hear a phrase like Buddha nature, partly because, you know, Buddha is good. He doesn't, we don't call it neutral nature or everything nature, or, or nature nature. The tradition has decided to, to label it with Buddha, which is very interesting. But also it, it, it confuses us. He later says, it is not the being of initially arising being, for ordinary mind is the way. And I, I highlighted that because you'll come across this phrase 
over and over again if you continue to read Zen teachings. Ordinary mind is the way, or everyday mind is the way. And it's, it's easy to misunderstand that sometimes this gets a lazy interpretation that, uh, you know, whatever I'm thinking, that's the truth. But what he's saying is deeper than that. That your mind and your thoughts and your memories and your hopes and your delusions and your fears are every bit as integral to reality as everything else. That if Buddha nature has no boundaries, if enlightenment has no boundaries, and we often use these terms synonymously, that means that everything is included. And that means that the qualities that you see in yourself as being the most immature and the least developed are also part of it. And as hard as that is to integrate into your understanding of your life, the degree to which you reject that is the degree to which you don't see how things really are. Because you are divvying the world up into flesh, skin, bones, and marrow. You're saying, this is real and this is not. This is good and this is not. This is true and this is not. I keep going back into my, in my mind, and I, I know this is a very imperfect image, to this trick, and maybe everyone's tried it. I tried it once. It didn't go well. Of you have a table and a tablecloth, and you set the plates and everything, and then you rip the tablecloth out. And you do it really skillfully, really quickly, really deftly. And if, if everything goes well, you have a tablecloth in your hand, and everything is just the way you put it. I've seen it done. Very impressive. When I did it, it didn't go like that at all. I think that Buddhism, for many of us, has that quality in a way that we, or we think of it as, as the rug being pulled out. You know, there's this kind of trick. And, and often what Buddhism does, what Buddhist teachings do, when they're trying to be skillful, you know, when we're thinking in terms of skillful means and deliberate skillful means, is we set that table and we offer a lot of conceptual view. And then we try to, to upend it. But the, the danger is that actually sometimes we, we, we are left with the trick. And, and so we pull the tablecloth out and every, the table's still set. Right? We pull out one idea, but we're still left with, with our fundamental idea of things. What you really want to have happen, I think, if, if you take that direction, is it's, it's more like the punchline of a joke. Jokes are great when you think you know what the ending is and you don't. right? And in the same way, if someone walks up to a, a table and they grab the tablecloth and they look at you like, I'm really going to do it. And they do it. And then all the dishes are gone. That's the next step. That's the magic trick. You think you knew what, what that person was going to do. 
but they took away much more. That, I think, is much of what Buddhism aspires to. I think that, that Zen, and I think Dogen is, is very much a part of this, though, is that rather than taking that route of saying, try this, try this, try this, try this, try this, now I'm going to take it away, it's more like the, the Zen approach is to walk in and just light the table on fire. <laughs> it's utterly disappointing. And it, and, it, and it says, you know, essentially in the middle of all this question about tablecloths and plates and glasses, we forgot to talk about the table, which itself is a construct and is also unnecessary. Take it out. What Dogen is, is trying so hard to do in this text, I think, is to take out the table. He's not just trying to shake you up. He's saying there's something in the middle of the room that's been there so long for you that you don't notice it anymore. But you don't need it. Many students, hearing the term Buddha nature, have falsely reckoned that it is like the I. This is because, this is very classic kind of language. I, I like it, but we have to talk about it. This is because they have not met a person. They have not met themselves. They have not seen a teacher. That's not literal, obviously. This is, this is language that you hear over and over in these kinds. To have never met a person, to have never seen a teacher, is essentially to have never seen things as they are. To have never encountered reality. So you could, you could, you could say, this is a person who has never seen a coffee cup. Right? And you could especially direct that at someone who drinks coffee. Right? It's a way of saying, this is a person who has never really understood what was in front of him. They have foolishly thought that the mind, mentation and consciousness moved by wind and fire are the knowing and comprehending of the Buddha nature. Who said that the Buddha nature has knowing and comprehending? So here he's going to yet another level of this. And he's saying, maybe you don't see the Buddha nature in moral terms. Maybe you don't see it as some sort of positive essence. But you do imagine it to be a vessel of wisdom. You imagine it to be a kind of clarity, a kind of view that to see with Buddha nature is to see things truly, or that Buddha nature recognizes Buddha nature, right? That Buddha nature essentially is its own consciousness, distinct from yours, or higher than, 
yours. And here he asks this question. I love it. Who said that the Buddha nature has knowing and comprehending? Who told you that Buddha nature is something that thinks? Who told you that Buddha nature is something that has an idea? No matter how wise that may be, if Buddha nature is something with a view, it's limited by definition. And he is trying very carefully, very determinedly, to suggest that Buddha nature is something that takes no perspective at all, which is another way of saying it's the whole thing. <laughs> While perceivers and knowers may be Buddhas, Buddha nature is not knowing and not comprehending. So Buddhahood may include view, but that view itself is not the same as Buddha nature. Buddha nature isn't that small. And Buddha nature is not that, again, positive. He's asserting that it's something that's very neutral. <laughs> I know in myself that I was very struck early in my encounter with Buddhism by the idea of, of Buddha nature seeing Buddha nature. And for a while, I was part of a tradition in which, in which you bow, and, and one of the verses you say is that I, I recognize the, the Buddha nature in you. Not out loud, but that's, you carry that. It's, I recognize the Buddha nature in you. I recognize the Buddha nature in you. And, and I want to say, first of all, I think that's beautiful. As a skillful means, that's beautiful. We should also remember that Dogen doesn't have a corner on the definition of Buddha nature. Right? So it's, that's a perfectly legitimate kind of teaching. But we can also start to recognize that when someone says, I recognize the Buddha nature in you, they're working from a completely different definition of Buddha nature than Dogen is. Because Dogen would say, that can't happen. <laughs> One, you can't spot it. Two, it has no, it has no discernible qualities. And three, what would be your radar for that? Right? How would that be a special kind of recognition? All of this is going to something that is, is so simple and so stark and yet so difficult which is the idea of looking at your life without expectations. 
Buddha nature is a stand-in, essentially, for everything that you think the world should be. Buddha nature is handy because wouldn't it be great if there were Buddha nature in the way that we like to imagine Buddha nature? Wouldn't it be great if there were some aspect of ourselves that is fundamentally and unshakably wise and clear? And that we just got to have that. And wouldn't it be great if we could open our hearts to see that everybody has that? And it would become like a radio frequency among us, among those of us who know, right? I'd be tuned into your Buddha nature. And maybe you'd be tuned into my Buddha nature. I, was, I, th I think it sounds funny when you say it, and yet I think it's fundamental to want to believe something like that. So Dogen offers this up, this thing that we cannot help but form concepts around. And he says, don't do it. And in doing that, he says, it's not just this. <laughs> But this is a particularly tricky one, so we're going to work on this. Right? And if you can start to imagine that the world really is just as the world really is, then you can stop, or at least slow down, with your constant comparing, and your constant layering on, and your constant subtraction. This clawing that we do at our lives, wherein we imagine that we're going to get to the center, that there's something obscured, whether it is our true nature or our destiny, our path, that there's a relationship that we're in, that if we could just kind of chip away the outer layer, we would see it in, in its, its raw glory. Dogen is challenging that very idea and saying, it's all right here. The world really is this. And there's no other skillful starting point but that. Everything else is just setting the table again and setting the table again. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.